This podcast is supported by CoinKite, the one-stop shop for everything you need to secure, use, and express your obsession for Bitcoin. The MK4, a new version of the hugely popular cold card hardware wallet, is out now with lots of new features for helping you to secure your Bitcoin. If you like to keep track of block time or keep track of the SATS USD exchange rate, the Block Clock Mini is the way to do it. And the gang at CoinKite have recently released the Tap Signer, which is an NFC-enabled card which holds a private key, allowing you to separate your keys from your wallets while still allowing for super easy transaction signing. To learn more about all their awesome gear and stay up to date on their new products, visit coinkite.com. Let's do it. There we go. We're live. Wes, awesome. how are you, man? Thanks for uh, joining me for a discussion today. Yeah, absolutely. I was, uh, I'm happy to be here and I was really glad and really appreciative that you um, hit me back on Twitter and took the time to read the little piece I wrote and just really excited to talk to you. Yeah, me too, man. I, I just read the updated version that you had on your Substack, and uh, you know, I guess we can dive right into that. And of course, you know, we can take the conversation anywhere you'd like to. But um, this theme of veterans becoming interested in Bitcoin and becoming a you know ideologically almost a very uh, congruent thing with the the experiences of veterans and the ideology or philosophy behind, you know, being a soldier and many of the things that you have to learn and integrate as a soldier and then coming out of that and perhaps seeing what the machine looks like and maybe having uh, a different view of it and then encountering Bitcoin and seeing both a potential solution to some of the problems you may have seen within that system, but also some very similar attributes that carry over very well. So, you know, basically, the floor is yours. You just, you know, tell me what you, um, what you've been thinking around this uh, thing. And of course your experiences as a veteran would be interesting to hear as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, <laughs> I'll start out by saying like, there's kind of this joke in the veteran community. Like anytime you say as a veteran, dot, 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 like you're kind of going to get made fun of. I'm going to break that rule and say as a veteran, when I started thinking about Bitcoin from the angle as a veteran. Why, why um, do you get made fun of? Like, well, why is it a no-no? No. It's just like, you know, people will be like, oh, as a veteran, you know, I, my opinion on, you know, the Second Amendment is sacrosanct. Or as a veteran, my opinion on... It's like a quasi-appeal to authority sort of thing. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, kind of. And just like, you know, a little bit of like chest thumping, I guess. But so I'm going to break that rule and say, as a veteran, I, <laughs> I was looking at Bitcoin kind of through that angle. Um, and one of the reasons I, I wanted to kind of write the, the short piece I wrote is um, I, I've always been looking at what I can do to kind of help the veteran community. There's a lot of different um, groups and organizations and charities out there, and it's actually almost overwhelming. And then since I've kind of dove down the Bitcoin rabbit hole a couple of years ago, I've had the same sort of thing with, with Bitcoin in terms of how can I, you know, have a voice here? How can I influence it? What can I do to kind of move this along and help everybody out? And I kind of wanted to marry the two together. And when I was thinking a lot about it, it's this weird kind of dichotomy where at a strategic level, right? All the people who are really into Bitcoin know about the petrodollar system and about the fiat system and about how, you know, what's the dollar backed by? Well, really it's backed by the US military and the US Navy and shipping lanes and all that. Um, and so counterintuitively, like you'd think, okay, well, Bitcoin kind of wants to smash all that, right? Or at least alter that or change that. But at an individual level, 
I think there's actually a lot of overlap between like individual veterans and like individual Bitcoiners are kind of the goals of Bitcoin. Um, and it's hard to make, you know, if you're going to speak broadly, you kind of have to make broad statements. So I would caveat it with like the veteran community is a pretty big community. There's all sorts of subgroups. There's all different aspects of it, just like in Bitcoin, same thing. Yeah. Um, but, but to kind of make some broad um, or paint things with a little bit of a broad brush, um, I think there's a, a lot of idealism at the root of both, right? Why do people join? And I'll, I'll kind of focus on the U.S. military just because that's my experience, but I think it's pretty applicable globally. You know, why do you join the military, assuming you're not conscripted? Well, there's some idealism behind it, and you're not thinking, you know, I'm going to go up and I'm going to take that oath because I want to secure shipping lanes and support the petrodollar system, right? Like, that's not why you're doing it. That's not why, you know, an 18-year-old is going to take that leap or a 22-year-old officer is going to take that leap. You're doing it because you want to make a difference. You want to serve your country. And you want to be some small part of trying to make a better world, right? And, you know, you get higher up in ranks and you get into the strategic aspect of things and you get into the politics. But at the, at the younger age and at the lower levels, you're, you're not really doing it for any of those kind of larger goals. So, um, and I think obviously in Bitcoin, the parallel is, I think most Bitcoiners get into it with a sense of idealism and a sense of hope and a sense of wanting to make the world a better place and leaving a mark and, you know, being part of something bigger than themselves. So I think, you know, on the positive side, there's a lot of kind of, I would say idealism and hope overlap in those two communities, or at least as, as the impetus for sort of why you get involved in them um, why you dedicate your time and your, your life and their energy to those, both those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And well, there's a, a lot to, to go on there, but so for one, how much do you, cause I read that in your article, you know, that people get involved at, involved in the military for at least partially for idealistic reasons. And, you know, I'm sure we all see like the, uh, you know, the Marine uh, TV commercials, right. And that just, it, <laughs> I mean, at least for me, I can only speak for myself, but I see that shit and I'm like, fuck yeah, you know, like that. I, I want to yeah. be a part of that. I mean, it's so, uh, there's so much glory and there's so much honor and it just seems like such a, there's so many elements there that really appeal to, I think, maybe the better, the more honorable aspects of ourselves. But, you know, if you are informed about these things or, you know, if certainly if you have certain political ideologies or philosophies, well, you know that that's, a type of propaganda to get you into a machine to basically carry out the agenda of, or the objectives of the government behind it. And sometimes they may be noble or certain elements of it may be noble, but I, I think we would all probably agree that it's gotten way out of control, you know, like defending your country, your homeland is one thing going out on, you know, all these different geopolitical missions for all these different, interests that have co-opted that apparatus is certainly another thing. And so you maybe get involved for idealistic reasons, and, but I'm wondering, does like, does that idealism change the longer you're in it? Do you become more disillusioned? Do you become, you know, do you uh, eject from that sort of ideology and then it becomes something else entirely? And maybe you even begin to resent it. And the reason why I'm, I'm kind of taking that line of thinking is because when you compared the two to Bitcoin. And I would say, to be fair, like a lot of people do come to Bitcoin for like, you know, the idealism, like a, a state free money. 
but also of course they come for number go up right and then they end up being like oh wow this is way mu- way more than just me being able to increase my wealth and then they stay and they become transformed and they become involved for other for other reasons but i think the reason why it has such a sticking power is because the idealism associated with it or the philosophy associated with them seems so good and true in a sense and that's where i saw the the kind of divergence between the two because i you know i think people with your experience right this is a question actually do you become disillusioned even if you're initially drawn in by a certain idealism um that ends up evaporating the longer you're there so um yes and no so i think you you do to a certain extent and i think it's it's really cliche but one of the immediate things you realize when you're in, it doesn't matter why you joined, whatever, you're in. And then it becomes about, you know, that guy on your left, guy on your right, your unit, your guys next to you. Certainly if you're in a position of authority, especially at the small unit level, like that platoon, that squad, that fire team that you're in charge of. Um, And so I would almost say like the idealism stays in that respect, right? Right. So, and you almost like it, like you mentioned before, it actually almost, you're trying to get to the better version of yourself. And there's certain things that will kind of only come out under that level of duress and that level of testing and stress, especially from like, not just, Hey, I'm in a firefight, but also the the idea of just the responsibility thrown on you for other people and their well-being at a young age at kind of all levels. Um, And so you kind of go back to like, whatever war you're fighting in, I think in whatever country, in whatever time period in history, there's almost, and that's why they kind of look at this like universal throughout time and space, kind of like warrior brotherhood, because I think they're everybody who's ever been part of any sort of combat becomes disillusioned pretty quickly Mm. with like the strategic level stuff. Right. But they, I think, do not become disillusioned and maybe even more hardened in their resolve once they realize or once they focus on that small level stuff and really the people directly around them. Um, so it's kind of, a, it's sort of a split answer. And I would also say, I mean, I'm more, di- <laughs> I'm more disillusioned now. And I don't want to paint myself as like Tom Cruise on the 4th of July. I'm not that. I'm very proud of it. I do think there's some cool stuff we still do with the military, but I'm more, more disillusioned now than I was before I kind of dug into Bitcoin, mm. mostly because I now have a better understanding of kind of the geopolitical machinations and how the, the military kind of is involved in that. And to what extent um, kind of the conflicts we go into are driven by economic concerns versus some of the idealistic concerns or ideological concerns that, that we were sold on. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, I think I think, you know, in kind of oddly understanding Bitcoin better has made me slightly more disillusioned with the military just at that high level. And I think. But again, there's this paradox, like I would never change what I did. I would never change my decision to join. I would never change the experiences. And I'll, I'll get into kind of some of what those were. But um, but I would also never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I would not send my kids to the military today, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's a really weird, I consider myself a fairly thoughtful person. I think a lot of veterans are. And it's a very weird kind of um, like emotional state to be in where you're, you feel a little bit torn because you're very proud of what you did. 
but you're very frustrated to, to a certain extent with how you were treated, right? By kind of the powers that be. Um, so it's a tough question to answer. It's kind of yes and kind of no at the same time. Yeah, no, I can appreciate that. And, and I can also appreciate, you know, the point you made about, because once you make a decision, it's made, right? There's not much point in, in lamenting that. You, you've decided to be a part of this. And, and so I think that's why, what's the point of questioning, you know, almost in a sense, the morality of the mission or the strategy, then it, it, it makes total sense to focus on what you can control, right? You can control your ability to adapt to the situation or, or conform yourself or forge yourself into someone who's most capable of adapting to that situation, forming those bonds with the people that you're there with, bonds of trust, bonds of friendship, looking out for them as they look out for you. And all that is very, again, like back to the, the Marine commercial, all that, there's something like primal about that, that I think speaks to a lot of us. And that's part of the reason perhaps why, well, why someone who's gone through it would say what you just said, which is like, I'm kind of, there's this kind of, I'm kind of torn, right? It's kind of paradoxical. I wouldn't do it again, but I, I wouldn't have not done it. Like I wouldn't go back and undo it, you know? And so there's, yeah. There's a ten there's a tension there between uh well there's a tension there. Uh but I can certainly appreciate it, you know. And as you're as you're talking about it, this is not a perfect parallel, but uh it makes me think of you could pick any martial arts gym, really, but I, I'm thinking of like the times of Plato, right? Where Plato was this big jacked wrestler. And you can imagine like you you these guys get together and they're like wrestling and sweating it out on a daily basis and really working hard. And then, you know, and they're building these bonds of mutual self-respect because when you see how someone else works, especially under pressure and like what you described, and I'm sure what you went through is one of the most intense crucibles you can imagine. It's like, there's, there's probably, as far as I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's, there's no real room for error. And if you, and if, if one of your, uh, you know, one of your brothers sees that you're slacking, making mistakes, cutting corners and such, they're probably going to call you out because, you know, it's a very consequential thing to do that. And if everyone is engaging in that in a constructive way, then you're probably going to come out the backside in a, you know, carved into, you know, molded into a better version of yourself, as you said. And I think that was the case, you know, back then as well. And that's why, you know, physical, uh, fitness and exercise and combat and stressful situations were part and parcel with extracting the best of yourself, which of course led into your, your thinking and your philosophy as well. I mean, they're, they're, obviously they influence each other. Um, but yeah, I mean, you said you, you, you kind of touch on some of what your experiences were. I'd be interested in hearing that if, if for no other reason for context. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> I guess I'll kind of start at the beginning. So I, I grew up kind of right outside New York in uh, in the suburbs and pretty much everyone I knew, their, their parents were in finance to some capacity, not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, so I was kind of immersed in that world, went off to college, played lacrosse in college, got out and was, was working a little bit. And I had never really too seriously considered the military, kind of to your point before, one of my very good friends who I ended up living with out there um, in California where I was stationed, he did his commissioning ceremony for the Marine Corps in his dress blues, like in the chapel at, at our college. And it was pretty intense. And so that may have planted a bit of a seed, but it was not something like, hey, you know, there's a lot of guys, since I've been six, I wanted to join and da, da, da. I wasn't really like that. And so I came out, was doing work, worked for about a year or two, 
And I just kept thinking like, I, this is something that will test me. And I know if I don't try to do this when I'm 50, when I'm 60, when I'm 40, I'm going to regret it. And I'm going to be really mad at myself for not trying it. Um, there was also obviously like from where I was, 9-11 was a big deal for everybody, but it was particularly close to home, kind of where I was. Um, and <laughs> I remember sitting in my office, you know, standard cubicle, kind of clacking away. It's all quiet. And I hear these fluorescent lights just kind of buzzing above me. I'm, I guess, 23 or so. And I was like, I, I can't do this. I can't, I'm, I can't do this. <laughs> not yet. Not now. And I basically took the train into Manhattan and went over to the Intrepid, the big aircraft carrier museum now on the west side. And um, that was where the Marine Corps recruiting station was. And I went in and I, you know, I didn't really do a ton of homework. Like I just was really going a lot more on gut. I did a little bit of research and stuff, but walked in and was like, hey, here I am, you know, do, do you need me? And they were like, yeah, there's a whole process and we'll do it. And so I went through that and I um, did all the training, went to officer candidate school down in Quantico, ended up being a logistics officer. So I always caveat everything I'm saying is like, I, I don't want to ever leave the impression I was like, you know, kicking down doors and killing bin Laden. I was just a regular logistics officer in the Marine Corps. Um, again, did all the training. In reality, what that meant at the time, this is about 2005, 2006, was a uh, motor transport officer. So basically a convoy commander running really big convoys out in Iraq and Afghanistan, although I was only in Iraq. Um, and anyway, went through the training, got my platoon, trained up and ended up in Iraq out in Al-Assad, which is an air base out in Ambar province out west. And as I mentioned, I was running, you know, these big logistics convoys. There's only a couple main roads you could do that on. This was like the height, this was pre-surge, kind of the height of the IED threat. And it was a mess. I mean, every time we went out, almost every time, someone was going to get hit by an IED or the threat was obviously very high of that happening. Um, so it was, it was very challenging. And the, the short version of the story is I was commanding a convoy one day and I got hit by an IED. Um, pretty badly. Like it blew our Humvee sky high. It blew me out. I was down the bridge. I think I had a one of the Humvee armored doors fall on my leg, which is, you know, I have some fair number of injuries still, although I can move pretty well. But, um, and it was, I mean, it was bad. I, I kind of blacked out. I woke up, looked down, my arm was hanging on by a thread. My feet were bad. I couldn't feel anything below my waist. I remember, you know, there's a lot of emotions, a lot of thoughts that go through at that time. And I was like, oh, my God, if I die in Iraq, I swear to God. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there's a lot of different Marines doing different things. My radio guy's calling in. The doc actually, the uh, Navy corpsman cut himself out of his seatbelt upside down, hanging over the blown up bridge, came over, helped us. You know, I got morphine sticking out of every every part of my legs, medevac back, and um you know, went from, from my base to a different base in Iraq to Launchstuhl, Germany, to Bethesda um, at the time, which was the Naval Medical Center. A lot of surgeries, a lot of recovery, um, kind of had to like relearn how to walk and all that sort of stuff. And then recovered with, at the time where my parents were living um, and did a lot of like private physical therapy and a little bit through the VA. So that's a really long way of saying like, that was kind of the <laughs> obviously defining experience or defining part of my experience in the military. Um, and hopefully, I mean, it was it was rough. It was not 
fun. It tested me. It didn't quite test me in the way I thought it was going to be tested, right? When I signed up, I wasn't like, all right, here's the test I hope I go through. Let me get blown up by a bomb, right? It was more what you think of when you see those commercials, right? Or when right, you see right. a movie, but different kind of test, right? And um, I say all that because it hopefully gives some context as to my statement before, which is like, I still wouldn't change it. I hopefully would like, I, I would, you know, I wouldn't change anything that happened. I got very lucky, right? In a lot of respects, but um, I also wouldn't do it again, right? I don't want to get blown up by an IED in Iraq because why, you know? for maybe for a reason that I'm not entirely positive why we're even there. Mm. And I've kind of, I was joking with someone the other day. I kind of, I've almost come full circle in the sense of like, you remember there was all these people protesting at the time around those wars and like the code pink people holding up signs that said no war for oil and blah, blah, blah. And I was kind of, you know, I was pretty dismissive at the time. Like, come on. And I've come to the thing where it's like, I've now understood actually maybe it was a war for oil and maybe they were right despite themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe they actually were right without even, I would argue without even really knowing why. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been a weird, you know, a lot of, I don't think anything about my kind of worldview or kind of core principles has changed over the years. I think I've come to the realization that some of the things that I thought reflected those or maybe embodied those, um, maybe don't to the extent that I thought they did. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it was a very, uh, it, it was a very trying experience. And, you know, I struggle with, I don't want to make that the defining part of my life, but at the same time, it was a very, very big part of my life. And it's not something you can kind of just walk away from or forget. So, you know, that's kind of a little bit of background about my experience in the military, um, just at the personal level. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I, like to ask some questions. And of course, if I touch on anything that's too sensitive, you just tell me you don't yeah, want to yeah. talk about it. But um, so when when this IED explosion happened, did you end up being removed from like war zone assignments after that? Because, you know, you had so much, you know, therapy and surgery and recovery to go through. And, it, um, and if so, how much how long had you been operating in a war zone at that point? So it's funny, not very long. And yes, so um, they, you know, I got medevaced. I did a lot of stuff. I spent almost a year to the day recovering to the point where I could actually go back out on my own. Um, and I went back out to where I was assigned at Camp Pendleton out in San Diego. And I basically spent the next year kind of commanding, co-commanding with another person, another lieutenant, um, like a remain behind element. So all the people who didn't deploy again, um, and we were kind of the two officers left and that was a challenge in its own right. A lot of like administrative challenges. There were reasons these people weren't, these Marines weren't deploying. So, you know, there was some discipline stuff and things like that. Just a totally different kind of leadership challenge. Um, and concurrently, you can imagine what it's like to out-process from the military, especially after an injury. And, and like, you know, there's disability payments and ratings and all that kind of stuff. So I, that was kind of my, my main personal job at the time. Mm. But it's weird. I was really only in that combat zone for like two months or so. Um, yeah. And they always say like, even going back to Vietnam, I think like, yeah, don't quote me on this, but like the average lifespan of a Lieutenant that got dropped into a hot zone in Vietnam was like 18 minutes, which is just insane. And so the point being like, I think there's always a lot of, a lot more risk at the beginning when you're first learning things, you know, yeah. in country, when you're turning over with the unit before you. Um, and I was just felt like I was getting in a good groove and, you know, this happened. So I don't, I was really only there for a couple of months. 
you said that when it happened and you know you were lying there fucked up and the world was spinning and all that kind of stuff that i'm sure a lot of thoughts cross through your mind and you know what the <laughs> fuck am i doing here this isn't how i want to go out it's not how i imagine things you know and a million other things i mean can you can you bring me that moment and what you were maybe yeah, thinking yeah. so i will i'll start with the actual explosion this is crazy but i mean it sounds cliched but the world slows down like yeah. milliseconds felt like minutes, right? And I could kind of feel, I had this sensation around the air and I'll never forget, kind of out of the corner of my eye, I see my driver next to me because I was in the front passenger seat kind of commanding stuff and with his hands on the wheel. And, but I had the feeling like we were in the air and I'm like, something's off, right? But this is all processing in a matter of like microseconds. And then I remember getting tossed, like I, the feeling of getting tossed out and feeling kind of like I was in a washing machine and being like, no human body is meant to do this. This is going to be bad, right? But this is all like really subconscious. They're not really formed thoughts. Right. And then I, I think I was out for a very short while, kind of woke up. And aside from like, obviously just terror, <laughs> looking down and seeing everything broken and messed up, I was also really mad, which I'm actually kind of proud of, right? Like I did have that warrior ethos, even though I was sitting there broken on the bridge, right? I remember screaming like, uh, not like, cry like screaming in anger um about what about getting like like i can't believe this just happened to me right and it really pissed me off because it was like a set it and forget it idea like a pressure plate that dude whoever set that was probably at home having dinner with his family right right there was no one i could shoot back at there was no one i could it was really frustrating like it was oddly quiet out in the middle of the desert right and so it was just yeah. like wind and quiet and you know you could hear some marines some of the marines yelling and trying to figure stuff out but um, so that was, it, it was really interesting. And then, you know, you're kind of like, I would say my thoughts for that particular period <laughs> started to get a little less lucid once the morphine started kicking in. But um, for a few moments sitting there, I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to die. And then I sort of the long, and again, I don't know how long this was, maybe even seconds, the time kind of gets all jumbled. But I remember thinking like, okay, I, I don't think I'm actually going to die, but this sucks. Like I'm really hurt. And then, the, you know, the Navy corpsman came over and the one sensation I really remember, they cut off my, we wore flight suits because they were um, supposedly more flame retardant. And they cut my flight suit off and they're kind of giving me the morphine and he had to cut my boots off and the explosion went off right under my boots. And so there wasn't like shrapnel or anything. It was just extreme pressure from the blast. And my feet, I think, basically swelled up like loaves of bread, but he took that boot off and I think I passed out briefly from the pain. It was the most painful thing I've ever felt. It felt like someone skinned your foot alive and lit a lighter under it. It was awful. So, you know, go through that or whatever and you get on the medevac. And, and I will say the one, I am definitely proud of the fact that I was able to keep it together enough. Kind of actually gave a few commands, told the radio guy to call it in. He was all shook up, but he was, you know, functional and walking around, but kind of shell-shocked. Um, my second in command came up. We had like a little chat before they medevaced us. And um, my driver actually was injured as well. So they loaded the two of us onto the medevac. But I do remember sitting there and, you know, kind of out of a movie, the Marines, they lifted me up. They put me on the, the litter, kind of that, you know, four handle stretcher thing. And I remember being very proud, right? Because they're run, literally running me down a bridge in 120 degree heat. Um, I'm pretty messed up. 
I don't have to give them any instructions, any orders. And I remember thinking like, this is like the real recruiting commercial, right? Like these guys, no one's ever going to know they did this. And this is what it's all about. And I remember being like very proud of like, these are the guys that I at least helped train. Um, so there's a lot going on, right? Emotionally, yeah. uh, mentally. And then they took us back. And I do remember the last kind of really funny story is I kept asking about my balls. I was like, I cannot be 24 and have my balls. Hey, I would <laughs> right? be concerned about that. And then the more drugs they gave me, like the more I kept asking, right? I'm like, oh, my balls, my balls. And uh, they take me back to the base and they put me in the, you know, the hospital ward or whatever it is. And they're kind of all running around trying to figure it out. And anyone who walked by, I'm like, can you check my balls? It's <laughs> 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 um, so a big concern for a 24 year old. Yeah. Player. Yeah, sure. Um, and it's a really weird story. The, the, so a lot, there's a lot else going on, but at the time, the commandant of the Marine Corps, so the, the you know, officer in charge of the whole Marine Corps, and the sergeant major of the Marine Corps, so top enlisted guy in the Marine Corps, were visiting, they happened to be visiting base that day. And the sergeant major came in. I think they they were like, hey, we just had a big, big hit, you know, come over, whatever, morale. And there's all these things going on. And he like hands me a coin, you know, because in the military, you kind of hand out coins. There's like challenge coins or whatever. And, and he's talking to me. And I'm like, dude, I, I don't want your coin right now. Like, this is a very nice gesture. But I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> he's just talking to me like, having a conversation. I'm like, I'm maybe dying here, man. <laughs> um, so it was crazy. And I ended up seeing the commandant later at the time when I was in Bethesda in the hospital. And he, uh, it was really cool. He can't, I mean, for what it was, he came and he did my purple heart ceremony and pinned it on my like hospital gown and, and read the citation and everything. And, um, you know, we were kind of chatting about stuff and he goes, wait, 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 you're that Lieutenant when I kind of told him what happened. And I said, yeah. And he's like, that was a ridiculously big IED blast. Like we changed all sorts of stuff at the base after, you know, that, I can't believe I'm talking, I can't believe you're alive, much less like you have all your limbs intact, more or less. Um, wow, like you're really lucky, right? I'm paraphrasing, but it was, mm -hmm. so that was like a really small kind of weird little coincidence. Um, and he was nice enough. He ended up getting, I think he got me the report of the incident so I could kind of read some stuff and fill some gaps in that like I wouldn't have otherwise remembered. Mm. Um, and I think I, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think they said it was about a, a one five, five artillery round and dynamite. So like just for context, it's a three or four foot high artillery round that they had packed underneath this bridge. So it was a, a lot of interesting experience in that. And to be honest, I'm surprised I remembered as much as I did. Yeah. And certainly this was, you know, 16, 17 years ago. Like I'm surprised I remember as much today, but I've written some stuff down over the years. So make sure I don't forget my old age. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to ask you about what the recovery process was like, because I imagine there's a lot of time to think and ruminate and just, you know, as you put yourself back together. But you mentioned how, you know, your experiences reflecting back on them, you mentioned the protesters of the Iraq war and how at the time you're kind of like, you know, shut up. And that, and <laughs> subsequent, you're like, maybe you were right for the wrong reasons, as you put it. Um, but I mean, how, how, cause like so much of the, the real mind fuck here, maybe that's the wrong word, but there, there's so many good elements of, of this experience but it's encapsulated in something 
that may be so wrong. And I'll, I'll put some meat on that bone just so you can appreciate where I'm coming from. But subsequent to the war in Iraq, right? WMDs was a big lie, right? It seems like most of the people, if not all responsible for 9-11 had nothing to do really with Iraq. As you said, it's probably about oil and other geopolitical concerns, military industrial complex, whatever, whatever. And yeah. so, and and then on top of that, we look at what happened to Afghanistan and I think, you know, is probably happening or will happen to Iraq 20 years after an occupation there, leaving with your tail between your legs with nothing to show for it, basically, other than, you know, a huge, huge, huge expense of both money and, and life on both sides. And so when you frame it like that, it's like, that is no part of that is good, right? Nothing at all good came out of that. And a ton of sacrifice in so many different ways went into it. And so, again, I'm not I'm not trying to stir up anything within you, but I'm, I'm trying to appreciate how to reconcile those things. Um, and, yeah. you know, again, yeah. you, you had a lot of time to think about it, especially on the recovery time. So I'm just curious what you what you came tough. up with. It is it is tough. I think um, to, to your point about like the Beltway Bandit contractor type, if I remember correctly and I don't remember where I heard this. But the word was that it cost a million dollars for the chow hall to run every day, just at the base I was at. Every day, year we were there, right? I mean, that's just like an insane, that figure's always stuck with me. Um, and to your point about Iraq, like, yeah, what do we have to show? Iran now runs that country, right? Iran runs that country. I mean, it's just, it's very frustrating. I think at a, at a high level, right? If you're looking for silver linings, not at a personal level, but like at a strategic level, and how do I reconcile my personal experience with being part of this larger thing that kind of ended up with, we'll call them suboptimal outcomes. <laughs> um, I guess my hope is really that, A, for better and worse, it created an entire group of pretty hardened people, right? Who learned pretty hard skills, like, you look at what some of the people much more experienced, much more deployed, much more kind of high speed than, than me, people deploying eight, 10 times, special forces guys, just regular unit guys. Um, there's a there's a kind of a brotherhood in there, which is kind of a shared experience, shared sacrifice, um, shared challenge that, you know, may have not been worth the cost, but if we're looking at, hey, the cost is sunk, that I think is a probably a silver line is you've created a pretty interesting, pretty, um, just a pretty hardened group of people, I think. Um, the other kind of high level silver lining, maybe, and this is a big maybe, is hopefully it's taught us some lessons and we're a lot more hesitant to go do these nation building type exercises in the future. Um, that's a big maybe. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I kind of yeah, have this feeling like they're looking around right now for like, Hey, we're, you know, how are we going to keep Raytheon stock high? Like where, where are we going to go? <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe for some, maybe for some like your, like yourself and, and others that hear a story like this. And, you know, I, I think like I opened up with, I think one of the hopes of Bitcoin is that, it will inhibit the ability of whoever controls the monopoly on violence to use it so willy-nilly for whatever nefarious, malicious, self-serving gains other than defense. 
Um, yep. You know, I think, I, I think, and so to the extent that prior examples help inform why that is a good thing, then, you know, that that's potentially a silver lining though, you know, history is littered with such examples and absent, <laughs> the, absent the means to inhibit it, it doesn't seem to do much good over the course of time, you know, and that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about Bitcoin because I, and then this, this is a point that's made a lot lately or is be becoming to be made more. And I think it's very salient in that, you know, in the fiat era, you don't even need to directly raise money from the citizenry to go and do these things. You can just press a button and, and surreptitiously steal from them, go off and do whatever you want, pretty much without any accountability. You know, because what, what are the people going to do anyways? Yeah. You know, what, what do the protests do anyways? I mean, not, none of it has really any effect doesn't matter which yeah. party is in power, the same thing is happening. And so it seems like the only way that that's going to stop is stopping the ability to steal from other people, steal from the citizenry so that you can fund such things. And then you're way more accountable to the people who are, you, the, the monopoly on violence is way more accountable to the people such that hopefully uh, we can be more judicious with that monopoly on violence in the future. Absolutely. I've, I've heard that point made as well, and I wholeheartedly subscribe to it. Imagine if you had a vote and said, hey, American people, do you want to pay a million dollars in taxes every day to feed these guys at this one chow hall in this one base in this one country? Yeah. I'm pretty sure the answer is no, right? Mm -hmm. Now, con conversely, I think, and I may be wrong, who knows, if you had polled the American people and said, do you want to pay your own taxes, we're not printing money, to go smash the Taliban and hunt bin Laden for a year in Afghanistan in 2001? I think the answer probably would have been yes, right? So to your point, it absolutely increases accountability. I mean, when you can just start start printing money for all these things for with absolutely no proof of work, right? It, it leads you to a, a state where you're almost like a military and empire searching for the next adventure mm -hmm. versus reacting and making sound judicious decisions about what does defense actually mean, right? And there yeah. may be certain appropriate times for offense, but in as part of a defensive kind of strategy versus, you know, let's just go see if we can build schools in Afghanistan or something, right? Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> and not just not just the unrestrained capacity to do that because of the way you can siphon off wealth, but the necessity, as you alluded to right at the beginning, that the, the whole this apparatus derives its influence and power from its exhibition of power, from its application of the power that yeah. it has. It has to continuously go and do that to keep everything held together. So it has to continue to go and uh, exert its power, capture resources, you know, be involved in all these ge geopolitical affairs so that because, you know, the because the money has no work in it itself right because there's no backing to it itself so the, the the power behind it is the backing so of course it's incentivized it's 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 a necessity that it goes and it, and it and it shows what it's capable of let's say and so for both of those reasons i think it's imperative as quickly as possible that that is stopped you know and again you mentioned the the idealism around bitcoin uh, i think that's that's part of it right separating money and state such that uh a different set of incentives is what's driving behavior, both on the personal and the collective, let's say, level. Absolutely. And it's kind of funny, like there's a psychological aspect too, in terms of like, if you're the big man, the big strong man, like you can't show weakness, right? And so mm -hmm. 
incentivized to kind of continue to flex, right? And to increase that kind of chest thumping capacity or whatever. Like even, you know, think about a guy like Putin, right? He's known as the big strong man. Like he, he's incentivized to continue to act that way and to show weakness. Like he's got guys all around him who want to take him down, right? Same idea with what you're talking about. If the system is based on you being the big dog and kind of um, projecting at least shows of power, um, then you're incentivized to do so. And you're very much disincentivized not to do so, right? And those are kind of two different things, but mm-hmm. they're related. And I think not to get too far into it, but I think that was what a lot of veterans were really, I think the Afghanistan withdrawal like was an absolute disaster. And I think for the first time in a long time, maybe Iraq, but less so because we kind of chose to pull out or whatever. But that one really, the Afghanistan one really hit home with a lot of veterans and really left them disillusioned and angry. Especially the Um, way it happened. You're just like, what the fuck? After 20 years, this is how, this is what's going down? Leaving $85 billion worth of equipment and a tail between our legs and the chopper on the roof, like is always the case. I mean, that that's where we're at. It's, um, there was a news thing with the Taliban doing their one year anniversary or whatever. And they're all in all of our vehicles, all of our planes, whatever. And uh, I, I was joking with, with a friend and I'm like, let me put it this way. As I mentioned, I'm not, I'm just some guy who joined up, right? I was a logistics officer. And if you had asked me and one other guy to design and execute the withdrawal from Afghanistan back when we were 24 year old lieutenants, we could have done an infinitely better job. Mm. Right. And I say that with all humility, because like the bar is very low compared to how it actually went down. Yeah. Um, It's just a mess, but kind of to your point, I think that whatever world we want, the current state of the world is kind of what we were discussing, which is, you know, the U S is the big dog maintaining kind of this imperfect global sort of uh, system. And I think that was a turning point in that, in terms of, you know, a lot of other countries, looking at that and being like, whoa, both friends and enemies, right? Enemies being like kind of licking their chops and friends being like, oh shit, this is, this is like what we're right. If the global order is maintained by this, like maybe we need to rethink the global order. Yeah. Uh, So like, yeah, it was, that was very personally frustrating, but as a kind of strategic at a country level, like it was also has, I think going to, is going to have some far reaching implications into the future that we probably may not even realize yet, or that may be playing out, right? As you kind of get this bifurcation of the, the, the world order and kind of this East, we'll call it like the China and BRICS and Russia alliance and sort of the, the US Western alliance. And I mean, we see that playing out right before our eyes, right? The whole oil thing, with the whole energy thing, with the whole petrodollar thing with Saudi Arabia coming out, with India being like, we need, we need stuff. We're gonna buy whatever from Russia. Like, it, it, I think these things are all sort of interrelated but to your point, it's all underpinned by the current system. And it's all, a lot of it is driven by like financial and monetary considerations, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely all interconnected. And it, we, it's hard to, to think that we, we don't exist. Like this moment in time is not an inflection point of some kind. You know, there's, there's so right. many things converging and so much change happening that, you know, because we, we tend to just, we have a very simplistic view of the past. You know, we connect the dots that are basically laid out for us in a way that just makes sense to our worldview, kind of irrespective of even if the truth of history is even really able to be discerned. But, you know, we kind of have a simplistic view. 
then we just, you know, we think about the future and we just extend it out a bit. Maybe you're into <laughs> technology and stuff and you say, okay, well, computers will get faster and AI is developing and all this kind of stuff. But the, the state of the world more or less, you know, stays the same because how are you to know how to project out and what changes might occur? But yeah, I mean, it, it seems like the world order is being shaken up. And on the one hand, you have all the competing, all the players in the former world order that was dominated by the US, right? The Pax Americana, if we want to use that term. And now there's there's probably a lot of jockeying. Like you said, they're licking their chops or they're worried and they're like, okay, like how is this all going to play out? And there, and you know, and then you have, I think the Bitcoin thing, which is people saying like there is a big shakeup coming, but hopefully we cannot descend back into the same type of arranging the world order just purely based on power that we did in the past. And maybe we can arrange ourselves in an alternative way. Now that's a big if, because, you know, the former is a very, it's cool. a, it's a, it's a gargantuan thing to turn around and, and to, you know, recapitulate. And then if you, you of course have everyone's agendas for the super green people to the WEF and all this kind of stuff. And so this is why I don't, I don't spend too much time, trying to figure out like who or what is in control. And I think a lot of us inevitably have to throw up our hands and say, you can't know which agendas and who's behind what and what's playing out in the world. I think you have to return to certain fundamental principles. And I think this is why a lot of people in the Bitcoin space end up either being drawn in or being becoming very principled people as a result of being in this space. Cause you, you have to say like, there's chaos in the world and there's chaos in my mind, of course, everyone, you know, contends with that. And you have to say, well, what are the orienting principles that I'm going to kind of, you know, use as my masthead that I'm going to stake myself to and say, look, I don't know what's going on in the world, but if I orient myself by these principles, I think that's the best way to generate the best possible outcome. And I think a lot of us are seeing in Bitcoin, those same principles that we probably, maybe we even, you know, determined before that they were the things that we wanted to commit ourselves to, to truth, to freedom, to peace, you know, to fairness, and we're seeing them represented so pristinely and so pragmatically in something like Bitcoin that we say, yeah, this is, this is right. I don't know, you know, I, I don't know how this is all going to play out, but that's the greatest degree of clarity I can muster toward building something that's as good as possible. And so I'm going to align myself with that. I'm going to align myself with those people, and I'm going to do my best to contribute to it and be a a part of that force rather than a part of the force of other another set of principles. Cause what else do you do? I mean, there's no, right. How do you, you know, I think you have to do that. There's too much chaos in the world to you can't go invade the West, right? What's that? Like, you can't go invade the world economic forum. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what do you just want another fight? And, and this is, this is the other thing about, you know, Bitcoin being so often referred to as, you know, like a nonviolent or a bloodless revolution and I've made this this point before, but I just, it, you know, let, let's take the example of like a drone bombing of a wedding party in Yemen, Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever, right? And under the auspice or, or the assumption that there's like a bad guy there amongst many good guys or money, many not bad guys. And, you know, an innocent person gets killed and it happens to be your son. Will you ever be able to see those people as the good guys? Or are you the good guy and you're the victim and the bad guys just did the most horrible thing imaginable to you? And so in, in 
in that way of settling things, of managing things, of creating order in the world, you just, that's why it perpetuates and always has perpetuated because de determining what is good and who is good and who is good, bad is a matter of perspective most of the time. There's not that many genuinely evil people out in the world, at least as far as I'm concerned. It's about people thinking they're good, doing things that end up being interpreted as bad to a lot of other people. And this is ever present in the world today. I mean, look at the the super woke, far left, WEF, however you want to characterize them. I think a lot of them think that their policies around energy or their policies around, you know, children and all these issues are good. They're virtuous. They're, you know, they're progressive. When in fact, the application of them seems to be generating, and I think logically would generate a lot of hardship, a lot of suffering, right? So there's a huge disconnect between what you think you're you're engaging in what you're doing and what the outcome actually is. And I think the only way to mitigate that to the extent possible, because there's always going to be some of it, is, is aligning your action with principles and values as much as you can and, and sticking to them. And you, it's, there's still going to be bad, not, there's no utopia, right? There's still going to be bad outcomes. But, and th I think this is why there's also a return or at least a return to exploring and investigating traditional values, traditional philosophies, religious belief systems, et cetera, because those are somewhat time tested. You know, there, there's a lot of wisdom and thinking have gone into them. They've been applied in many different places and times. And is there any insight or wisdom that we can extract to them and carry over to our time to help subdue some of the chaos that is seemingly running ramp rampant in the, in the world today? And I think, you know, you, I, I certainly see that in the Bitcoin community as as well, or Bitcoiners as well. And I think there's a lot of merit to that approach to say like things have gotten overly complexified and as a result, overly chaotic and perhaps overly fragile. How do we distill things back down to things that we can be more certain in and how can we then hopefully use them to orient ourselves optimally, something like that. So it's really funny. <clears throat> I'm kind of laughing on the inside because in addition to the thing I wrote, I'm working on something else that is really just it's, it, it, you know, it mentions Bitcoin, but it's a little bit more broad and it's kind of tentatively titled back to basics, mm -hmm. right? A prescription for what ails us. And it's just this whole concept of across the board, culturally, economically, financially, spiritually, food, health, schooling, you name it. Not, again, nothing's a utopia, but we are going to be much better served by saying, okay, time out. Everything is gone bad shit. Everything is way too complicated in an unnecessary way. Mm -hmm. We need to go back to basics, right? And if you think about like sports or frankly, like a military unit or really anything, right? Like there's that one in, uh, what's the movie Miracle with Herb Brooks and the USA hockey team. And like, he just has them do sprints all night till they throw up, right? It's back to basics, <laughs> right? It's just a reset. And I think, but in the good way, not in the, you know, the great reset. The way. great reset. Yeah. Right. And I think part of obviously Bitcoin plays a huge role in that back to basics, sound money. And it, I mean, it's a little of a misnomer with Bitcoin because we're not going, we're going back to basic principles, but with a futuristic technology, right? Sound money, hard money, but it's not necessarily a return to what was it's let's build the future with all of the cool new stuff, including Bitcoin, but on a foundation of principles that are basic and that are time-tested to your point, mm -hmm. right? Like there are certain truths that a 
I don't even know, ancient Chinese philosopher, medieval Dutch farmer, Upper West Side Manhattan lawyer today, right? That apply to all of them up until about six seconds ago, historically, that everybody agreed on, right? Yeah. And we've we've definitely strayed from that. So, you know, I'll keep you posted on how that goes. But half <laughs> it's, um, it, it's just really funny you said that because it fits in so well with what I'm writing. And also, obviously, Bitcoin represents this back to basics, right? Get back on a hard money standard. And kind of to your point before, what would be, what hopefully will be really interesting to see, and hopefully we see in our lifetime is, how does this new world order look if everybody has this universal economic or universal, you know, monetary truth known as Bitcoin, right? What are the incentives? Because all these things take time to play out, right? Mm. And if everybody now operates on a sound money, what are the geopolitical implications of that? What are, you know, the specific military implications of that? I know, you know, Jason Lowry is doing all that work up at MIT and I understand most of that, but not all that, right? Pretty big brain stuff, but um, it's really fascinating to think through, but I think it all kind of ties together in terms of that being a really big one of the pillars of this sort of back to basics mentality of, you know, you cannot have historically, I mean, you know, anyone who's ever listened to a Bitcoin podcast knows like, Fiat doesn't last, it, mm. but like, it's almost a law of physics, right? Or math, like it doesn't ever, it's never lasted. It never will last. So something has to come after that, right? And mm. there may be governments around the world that think that's gold, right? I, it, like maybe, but I think if you look out far enough, it's almost a no brainer that it's Bitcoin. It's just, how do you get there? Right. And that's the challenge. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, and I wonder too: Are we gonna? How much of that are we gonna experience? It's gonna be a never-ending process, of course, right? It's not just like, hey, we've arrived, and it's as we always thought it was gonna be. And you know, sometimes I think, oh, this is gonna take a long-ass time to play out. But then you look at a phenomenon like the internet or the mobile revolution or that kind of stuff, and that's had a, by virtue of the fact that we're so connected now, and that the the benefits of being connected to these technologies are so extreme that it's it's a detrimental you, you it's detrimental to be excluded from them or to exclude yourself from them that you know perhaps the there could be a lot of change very quickly now of course in the in the geopolitical or political context i would say that's probably going to be very destabilizing right and this is what we you know us bitcoiners discuss all the time like just how destabilizing and how to to manage and adapt to that uh that rapidly changing landscape and i think you know this explains much of the things that we're experiencing today, right? Whether it be, you know, the COVID response or whether it be what's happening politically or whether it be what's happening with gender, what is happening with militarily, like this is all part of the destabilizing force that's seemingly coming to a type of crescendo now. Um, and and we shall see. But I, I agree with your point that there's going to be this is, a, this is a topic I've been thinking about and exploring a lot lately is to what extent has progress and modernity overstepped its bounds, you know, to like, and so basically how should we be considering progress? Like what, what about our, and in the modern world, we basically think of that as technology, right? Technology yeah. equates to progress and some people equate it to like uh, certain government styles of, of social support and stuff like that, which I completely disagree with, but um, most of people think about it techno technologically, but 
how should we be thinking about that? And like, are we over-indexing for the value of technological sophistication or complexity? Um, and it, as you said, I mean, it conjures up these images of like, well, what have of the past have, you know, time-tested traditions or ways of behavior or principles, have we too quickly done away with in favor of just development and advancement and which, and I don't think this is entirely conscious, but for the sake of this conversation, let's say, and which are we going to go back to and try to reintegrate into ourselves and into the culture and dial down some of the emphasis that we might pl might place on material complexity, let's say. And, you know, like there's, there's many ways that you could kind of explore the, the logic here, but even as something like medicine, you know, one of those things that we often talk about is being highly advanced as medicine. And they say like, well, people lived way shorter lives back in the day. I think most of that is explained through the birth rate being a lot uh, lower and that throws off the, the average age. But if you think about someone today who basically eats whole natural foods and is physically fit and spends a lot of time in nature and gets their sunlight and gets their fresh water and all that and has good relationships in their life, how much healthcare do they really need? And the answer is most like very little, most often, you know, there, yeah. there's obviously exceptions, but like, if you live that type of lifestyle, you're probably going to live a, a long and healthy and, and, and vibrant life. And so if that was the default life, at least for people in a certain period, uh, parts of the world, you know, thousands of years ago, thinking of kind of like the Mediterranean or fertile crescent, then would they, I mean, was med was medical advancement even something desired for them or, or right. like, did they need it as much? Basically what I'm trying to say is like, we've, we've placed ourselves in this position where we've interpreted the things we've developed as being progress when perhaps in many cases we've generated the circumstance that requires them, right? So we, we've generated these lifestyles that the, you know, the standard American diet, let's say, is absolutely horrible. People are incredibly sedentary. They don't move around. They don't use their body. They're not out in nature. They're fat. They're, you know, all this kind of stuff. They're just horrible. And so medicine has had to develop in order to address that state that, that modernity has put people in. And I'm not abdicating their responsibility. People have put themselves in it in large part, but certainly the, the context of things, well, everyone doing that has generated a context that makes it kind of a positive feedback loop. Um, but if that were not the case, presumably you'd have less incentive or less need to, you know, hyper, to, to have so much development in the medical domain. Anyways, my, my point just being like, when we correct for those things, and when we bring back some of those principles and values and into our lives, I'm curious, and, and with Bitcoin as a pristine mechanism of determining at least market value, and I think that has a lot of impact on how we determine value in our lives. And as a side note, I think this is why you see a lot of Bitcoiners uh, ending, ending up valuing things that are intangible. So not necessarily the mansion and the yachts and that kind of stuff, but friendships and health and meaning and uh, meaningful work and 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 self-actualization in, in other means um you know like how is that going to reorient how we act and as a result uh society and then how are we going to interpret progress and then how are we going to look back on this period and be like instead of saying wow we were at the height of civilization over the course of you know the last five thousand years Maybe we'll look back on it and say, wow, what an aberration that was, that time right. where there was there's so much of this distortion and so much 
violence and so much ill health and so much uh, distorted or perverted thinking. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, the whole is kind of broken. There's like a there's like a schism, right? It's funny. You all you almost want like the ancient Mediterranean lifestyle with modern day cancer care, right? That's how I would put it. There are certain parts of it, but what you don't want, like to your point, what if you took like I don't know some of Plato's students, right, and brought them today, and you said go sit in this cube for eight hours, don't move, <laughs> do this, have this sedentary lifestyle, and when you feel bad about it, go drink a ton, and we have like this whole armada of drugs that you can take right like to your point i'm not sure they'd view that as progress yeah now if they had this weird thing like cancer or some odd crazy thing and you took it and magically fixed it it would seem like magic to them so you know to your point i think there's and it's weird to think kind of how technology advances no matter what but the the human side of things can get really dark right and it goes up and down and sort of as technology advances the human side I think is a lot more volatile, but also to your point, like my dad always uses a phrase about a lot of things like technology in search of meaning. And I think we're sort of at that stage where we don't have meaning that we create technology around to better fulfill, you know, some kind of ideal goal or some important end state. Um, we have like, you know, whatever, like dick pic apps and like TikTok. And, <laughs> or like that is not something that needs to be created, right? And so, yeah. but, it's, but we have the ability to do so. And it seems almost like at least, you know, the modern part of our civilization is almost like so civilizationally exhausted that we're just looking to like, what trinket can we make next? What digital kind of like little toy can we do? Um and again, to bring it back to the money, like think about the whole, you know, like how the funding for that works and where the money comes from and, you know, not to rip on VCs, but like which VC is funding that and what their interests are and where do they get their money and that whole kind of cycle. Think about the incentives within that. Like, are you really incentivized with this kind of money to go out and do the hard work of creating something worth value? Versus like, I don't know, I can get rich pretty quick if I just do like TikTok too and market right. it, right? And so it, it is, it's really interesting to think, but I do think to your point, we're at this point where if we did it correctly, you could lead, you could really take this like next step civilizationally in terms of you combine our modern day technological abilities with this concept of back to basics and you know, you got a pretty kind of a superpower civilization there. Mm. It's a lot easier said than done, right? Totally, but obviously totally. the money has to be part of that, right? And yeah, an actual hard money that, like to your point about the market-based stuff and like healthcare, for example, I defy anyone in the United States of America to tell me what it costs to fix a broken arm, right? Like you don't know. There's mm. 8 million different line items on the bill. There's 40 different people getting like, my daughter broke her arm. The top line item was $22,000 to fix a broken arm. I paid zero. You show me a world where that system makes sense, right? And I think if it's market-based, imagine if you had to pay for your healthcare in cash, not through insurance, but in cash. I think you'd see a lot more people pursuing healthy lifestyles to avoid having to go to the doctor for all these things, to avoid having to take these medicines. Now, imagine if you had to pay in Bitcoin. Right. Like 
to part with that. I'm gonna take care of myself. <laughs> right, you take well. care of yourself. Like, yeah. Your incentives are perfectly aligned, right? If I gotta go to the doctor and pay him Bitcoin, like, man, it better be for something like an emergency, like a broken leg or you know something worse like cancer. Like, it's not gonna be because like, oh, I kind of have a headache or I'm feeling like down today, right? That's yeah. so. I think that's a big. Again, it all ties together, right? But kind of the from the health perspective and the technology perspective. If you can combine sort of a return to these basic principles with some of the technological advancement we have, it's almost like reorienting all of this brain power and energy and pretty incredible technology, just reorient, reorienting it in a better direction. I think you have a really, like that's what gives me hope for the future and no one's ever really accused me of being an optimist, but I think that's... Um, that would be probably the way that I would frame the best outcome we could have, right, going forward. And to your point, like, I, I hope I'm around to see it because these things take a lot of time. And like, I'm 41 now and only recently have I started being like, like my biggest regret about Bitcoin and kind of all these other, I don't want to call them revelations, but sort of changes in, in my, my view on things is like, man, I just hope I'm around to see it. Like, mm. like time's not stopping, right? <laughs> and so yeah. it would be really cool to see this stuff play out. and even if it's just step changes, right? Like it's not gonna, you're not gonna go from, to your point, from here to there immediately. But if you can see these incremental changes, and I think we're maybe starting to, um, you have a really exciting future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and I, I catch myself saying that to myself a lot, right? Like, man, I really hope I'm around to see some of this renaissance, even just the beginning, you know? Like, yeah. but then I have to remember, I am, we are. Yeah. This conversation right. is that, you know, and we don't like to ascribe too much relevance or importance to our individual actions. And I don't think like this conversation has that much, but like it's a trickle before it's a flood, right? Like it has to start somewhere and where it's starting is, you know, the people that you and I both know and have spoken to and follow and learn from and the things that we say and that we write that are all just contributing to this formation of this thing. And it's gaining more and more mass all the time. And this is how it's done, right? It doesn't happen like one day it's not, one day it is. It's just every little bit as people get more drawn in, as you said, like you, when you start thinking about these things, you start being more critical of the philosophy that you live your life by, your political philosophy, your economic philosophy, what you deem most important or most valuable and meaningful in life. All these things just click, click, click. Click, click every day. They just kind of change and are tweaked a little bit and tweaked a little bit. And they, they inform how you behave and who you interact with. And that happens to a hundred people and then a thousand people and 10,000 people and a hundred thousand million, 10 million. And at a certain point you look around and you say, wow, I can't believe we've, we've moved this far, you know, on the journey. And I, I mean, I think that's even true since, you know, a couple of years ago in Bitcoin, like, the types of conversations I'm having now versus when I first started the podcast, which was in late 2019, let's say, are are pretty different. You know, like right. we, we are shifting to a broader discussion about, you know, all sorts of things like like we're speaking here now about philosophy and health and living and like it's starting to permeate through. And so and I'm and I feel that like that's my experience. Like I get I've gotten from and continue to get every day so much energy from being in some capacity even not involved even if i wasn't involved at all just knowing that this exists and using it to amplify what's meaningful and important in my life like even just that and you know of course the 
I think a lot of us are experiencing like a type of intellectual renaissance where you're just like your brain's on fire and you're you can't consume information fast enough to integrate into your perspective and reorient, you know, your pattern recognition and, and how you see the world. And every day it seems like, oh, like there's a mind bending thing that you didn't yeah. consider before and you you investigate it. And and that's that's it. Like, like this is this is how it goes. And if we're right, you know, if what we're. If if what we're if what's causing that to happen within us, i.e. Bitcoin and all the related things is is true then I think, well, it's, it's the truth of it seems to be represented in the impact that it's having on people. And if that's a valid metric to determine truth, then I think we're really on to something here because the, the impact that this is having on people seems to be so positive that how could you, I mean, how could you, how could you say that it's, it's not true, especially in like, cause you know, not a common criticism is like, yeah, well, you're all just drinking the Kool-Aid. And of course, there's like a self-reinforcing aspect of all that when you put yourself in a type of echo chamber. But I think at least we all don't want to be deluded. You know, like I think a <laughs> lot of us are more rigorous in trying to confirm our conviction than are many other people with strong convictions today. Like, you know, call it, you know, the, the slay your heroes or call just poking, poking holes in your thesis or why there's so much hunger for these conversations and for reading this material and what have you. Because when you, when you feel like you're in the presence of something so truth and therefore it's true and therefore something so powerful, you really want to make sure it's real because right. belief, belief is a motherfucker. Like once you believe something, it behavior flows from that. It's not a matter of discipline. It's, a, it's like, it's, it's, it generates the preferences that inform your action. And that's like, that's the double-edged sword of belief perhaps, because if, if you, you hold a convicted belief and it's not true, then all those actions that effortlessly, effortlessly flow from it may lead you to a worse place. But if, if the belief, if the principles, the value of the thing that's causing that is true, then presumably it leads you to, toward the truth, which I, you know, I think is a synonym for the good. And, you know, so, and I think a lot of us, or at least I'll speak for myself, don't want that to happen or want to be as conscious, want to engage that process as consciously as possible, because I want to seek the truth. You know, like I want to, no matter what it is, you know, good or bad, difficult or, or easy, like I want that because I guess I have a faith that the true and the good are synonymous. They're, they're intertwined. And that's a, you know, that, that's a statement of faith about reality if you, if we want to take it there. But, and so I, like, and I, re, and I realized the, how belief operates, I think, at least to a certain degree. And I, I don't want to be a victim of that. I want to, I want to make sure I'm engaging something of such influence as, as, as best as I can. And I think a lot of us are like that. And therefore I like, I, I, yeah, I, I think we're, we're doing a decent job at, at, at encountering something that is so strange and novel and trying to figure out if it's real and testing it on the only real ground that matters and the only one that's righteous, which is in, in the playing field of our own life and our own minds and our own consciousness and not out on others in the world in advance of ourselves. I, yeah, I totally agree. There's a lot there. I think, um, yeah, if you kind of go back to that marketplace, right? Like truth wins out in the market eventually. 
right? Like Bitcoin is almost like the company that lasts a hundred years versus quarterly earnings, right? If quarterly earnings are lies and manipulation, then truth is Bitcoin and that thing that lasts forever. Um, and I think ultimately, like what you were saying, I kept thinking of these building these parallels, right? Parallel economies, parallel societies, parallel aspects of society and how Bitcoin plays into that, right? And it's a lot easier to, I think, build something based on, you know, these basic principles and these fundamental values than trying to alter kind of a corrupt and sclerotic and kind of dying yeah. set of institutions that are really not, like, if you do that, you're going to be banging your head against a wall. And I think a lot mm. of people feel that. And I think a lot of people that get into Bitcoin where you see, like, they had this belief system, you know, based on all these old institutions and everything. And when they come to Bitcoin, at least the kind of like self-reflecting ones are pretty aware of that. And they're like, okay, right. I mean, I'll just speak for myself, not super technical. You know, I work at a big corporation. I understand business, blah, blah, blah. But like, I'm not the technical guy. And so when I started looking at Bitcoin, same thing. How do I like this? Come on, this is silly. There's no way this is going to work. Okay, maybe it'll work. And you kind of start to poke holes in it. And like, I'm not exactly qualified to sit there and poke holes in the, the base code, but like as a sort of probably more from like the financial and monetary end, maybe the social cultural end, mm. um, I'm constantly looking at it like, okay, you know, what doesn't make sense here? And you put in those hours and you realize like, you know, I respect this thing more because I've tried to poke holes in it and because I've questioned it and because I've frankly like sort of scoffed at it or whatever versus something where I didn't really have to do that. And so I had a very strongly held belief about X, Y, or Z, but because I didn't poke a bunch of holes in it or try to, you know, I don't really, I don't really care about it as much. I don't respect it as much. And it's not as deeply held a conviction because it hasn't um, survived kind of that gauntlet, right? That, that truth testing. So it's really, it's a really interesting, I mean, I remember kind of when I first heard about it and I dismissed it because the person who I saw posting about it online was someone who I kind of bothered me and annoyed me. It's like a guy I went to business school with. And I was like, oh, well, he likes it. Like that dude sucks. It must so, be an idiot. <laughs> yeah, it must be stupid. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's probably got a net worth about a hundred times right now, right? But then, you know, you, you, everyone gets it at the price they deserve. And I came in and, and it was recommended to me by a very smart hedge fund guy that just happened to be a friend I grew up with. And, you know, I used him as a little bit of a proxy for kind of validating at least the beginning, because like, he's a very serious guy, very smart thinker, very rigorous thinker. And said, I put a lot of work into this and like, you should buy it. Oh, and he offered to buy it back at a certain price from all of, all of us. We nice. didn't like it much higher than the market price. Chat but, move. You know, everyone kind of, yeah, such a chat move. And he actually doesn't work at a hedge fund anymore and does other really chat things, which is cool. whatever the fuck he wants. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So he actually started a non-alcoholic um, non brewing company called Athletic Brewing and he, uh, cool. they're killing it. But um. Dude, I, I, I'll tell you this anecdote because it's so relevant to what you just said, but my my girlfriend and I, we go to jiu-jitsu multiple times a week and uh, yeah, I've always loved beer, right? And I try to, I only like, I don't, I don't drink very much, but on the weekend I'll have like, you know, one or two, but I've always loved it. And after a hard workout, when you're hot and sweaty, I mean, there's nothing more satisfying, right? And so we've, we've 
we have a bit of a habit now, like not all the time, but every now and then after our session, we'll go get some non-alcoholic beers and just crush them on the side of the road mm-hmm. on our, on our way back to our flat. That's awesome. Look yeah. for athletic brewing. I swear he's not paying me for this. I'll talk about <laughs> or something. Um, but yeah, they're killing it. But he was a guy who taught me and, you know, my brother, he's actually kind of closer friends with my younger brother. And, you know, these are a smart group of people. A lot of them work in finance and they, they really did the homework and dug in. And then what's also cool is you get this kind of, and, and I'm sure you've experienced this probably on a larger level, but you get this group of friends that you we're friends with anyway, or acquaintances with or close with or whatever. And there's probably a reason for that, right? Maybe it's just because you had some shared experiences, but also there's got to be some level of kind of shared worldview. Mm. And it's really neat to see it click for everyone kind of at the same time, or at least in a staggered way. And all of a sudden, like you have this group of people and I, I, I kind of view it as like these little fire teams or these little platoons, right? Even just like the Bitcoin meetups, but more so like a pre-existing ones that now are all kind of tied in together with this thing, right? And trading texts about it and like, you know, all the updates and sharing podcasts. And it's like, okay, we're all just holding hands, diving down this rabbit. (laughs) It's just a pretty cool thing to see, but, and it, it, it sort of validates what you're talking about before. And what I was mentioning is to see that many people give it such a rigorous test kind of all separately on their own and come to the same conclusion, even strengthens or strengthens your conviction more. Right. Because totally. you're like, okay, I'm not the only one who kind of kicked the tires on this and like scoffed at it or maybe dismissed it or maybe was a little skeptical of this or that. They all did too. And they all still came to the same conclusion, which is mine, which is like, this is inevitable. Right. Yeah. Time TBD. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's cool. It's, it's a really, I love like sort of the social aspect of it as well. Um, and how that kind of ties into people just, it's almost like the scales drop off their eyes. Right. And they just see. You can't unsee it. You, you just cannot unsee it. <laughs> it's freaky. I mean, I totally agree. And and how cool is it to have a thing that not only you can get together with your homies and like you, you know, get together at the meetup or the, the bar or whatever, and you're all just like sharing the new epiphany or like, you know, really yeah. passing back and forth these ideas. And it's in relation to something that's so consequential or so meaningful, you know, because uh, again, uh, my experience was prior to Bitcoin, like I'd always been quote unquote thoughtful and wanting to know how the world works and all that kind of stuff. But how do you fix it? You know, as we've been discussing, like absent, absent something like Bitcoin, how does this big mess get turned around? And definitely to a degree, I I was despondent and, you know, so you, and if you can avoid just going out and getting blasted and doing that kind of stuff, well, even if you, you know, you don't do that, you're a little more mature perhaps, but you go around and you, you know, you're having small talk with, people and you're just like well, we're not talking about anything interesting here this is fuck i don't give a fuck about the the, yeah. the the political controversy of the week or the celebrity this or that like this is all just bullshit and then something enters your life where not only is it so consequential and what it can do to the world but it's so multifaceted that you can go down so many different rabbit holes or you have to go down so many different rabbit holes to properly understand and contextualize it. So you got to go down the economics and the monetary and the, you know, math and physics and the social and the historical and the, like, it's never ending, right? That's why we call it the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And it's so stimulating that, as you say, I mean, it really brings a richness to your social life now to the extent that you have those interactions. I know there are a lot of Bitcoiners out there that are still kind of isolated, but, um, 
but it's great, right? Because you can actually, it's meaningful now. Like you're getting to get, there's like, you feel like you're on a mission together almost. Like you're, you're really yeah. trying to, there's a mystery here and you're trying to figure it out. And you're, 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 and to your point earlier about um, how, you know, as you were speaking, I think a lot of people in the modern world, and I'm, this is a fairly judgmental assessment, but lead kind of a, the unexamined life yeah, as it absolutely. were, right? So much is just thoughtless. So much responsibility has been abdicated and there's so much dependence on other systems, institutions, people, et cetera, that people just kind of check out or they have a very narrow view of things. And I think that what Bitcoin represents and bringing it into your life and integrating with it and using it, as we often say, you know, Bitcoin is kind of the personal responsibility revolution. And so in order, if you're going to take, if you're going to continue kind of expanding that scope or sphere of responsibility that surrounds you, you need to examine those things that you're going to start encompassing, right? You need to be more knowledgeable yeah. about them so you can do that capably. And that's awesome. But also it's transformative, right? Because if you're going from the type of person that didn't think about those things before, and as a result, didn't, wasn't changed by the insights to be derived from doing that level of examination. Once you start doing it, of course, you're going to have to, as we said earlier, reorient and re and upgrade your perspective. And this, this technology or this phenomenon is so antithetical or it's so novel in relation to the system that we all grew up within that it's very likely that it's going to require a substantial upgrade. You know, and we're, we're right in the middle of that right now. And sure. We're the ones that are being, upgraded perhaps the most quickly because we're so we were drawn into this so uh, intensely but uh, you know I, I fully accept that a lot of the opinions and things that I'm talking about now will be very different or at least somewhat different or at least m more broad in three and five and ten years time because we're kind of having to recapitulate recapitulate our perspective in relation to an emergent like a totally kind of a different world a different set of incentives a different set of principles, and an emerging world rather than one rather than the one we derived our, all of our signals from before which is you know let's say the for lack of a better term the fiat system you know so I, I i think for that reason it's a very transformative process and to your point earlier about terence mckenna uses this term called the archaic revival which is i think kind of what we're yeah it's a nice nice way to describe what we're talking about which is saying <laughs> let's take the best principles and traditions and wisdom from the past and let's marry it with the material complexity or material innovation that stacks on top of itself as time moves, as history moves forward. And, um, you know, I, I think that's probably the process that we're engaging in, and it's going to cause very significant changes in how we think. And, and just back to the, um, the, you know, this, the, our counterpart in like, let's say, uh, ancient Mediterranean and you were saying, you know, like, what would they think of modern culture? What would they think of modern medicine and all that kind of stuff? And they would think like, well, most of this is garbage, but, you know, the cancer treatment would be, you know, potentially helpful. And maybe you're right, but I mean, it could, we, you could easily consider a scenario too, where that person has a different perspective on their own mortality and, and how it relates to the life they live. And they might say, look, I, I live a life, I accept the life I live and I accept when you know, when, when my time is up and I appreciate, and I, I live so fully that the difference between 60 and 80 years is relatively, right. you know, not, not a huge matter or, or the difference is not all that valuable to me. And so the things that might 
allow me to extend it to that degree are 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 not terribly valuable valuable to me either. Now, again, it's just an example. I'm not I'm not assuming that that's going to be the case, but I use it as an example to to speculate on just how much our perspective on things may be changed as a result of such a fundamental change on how we interact with each other and as a result the institutions that get built up and as a result the values that are imbued and, and manifested in the culture and as a result how those then reflect back in us and that ongoing feedback loop of culture and consciousness and how that gets capitulated and changed over the course of time and so and again like i got a smile on my face saying this because it's so fascinating it's, yeah. you know you go from a life where it seemed kind of boring and meaningless and i know it does for a lot of people in the world today which is why we have a mental health crisis and a you know substance abuse problem and you know all of the 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 nihilistic despairing problems that we have in modern culture to now be confronting something that seems to be the exact opposite of that to be re like to be at least a catalyst for the reemergence of the examined life and all the meaning that might be brought into it as a result of that is unbelievably exciting. I I couldn't agree more. And I think when you said before, you're like, you always were a pretty thoughtful person, reflective, and then um, this sort of, I'll say amplified it or took it, you know, in a, in a certain direction. And I'm kind of the same way. And I, I fully agree. Right. I, like, I think we're at the bread and circuses stage where people say, hey, you know, watch football, do this, you know, click on the latest app. And it, what's really cool about Bitcoin, I think, is if you're, there's a bit of a caveat, like if you're at all reflective or kind of thoughtful, and if you're decently intelligent, have some sort of, you know, well-read enough to have some sort of kind of basic background, it's actually cool coming into Bitcoin as like an outsider or a newbie, because, and I actually think this goes beyond Bitcoin, right? I would actually say this about certain jobs, like certain facets of life, Provided you're like, you know, a somewhat like intelligent, thoughtful person and, and capable person, it's almost better because you're looking at everything with fresh eyes, mm -hmm. right? And so what's always funny to me is like, I hear Bitcoiners talking about this and that that happened in 2017. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, I do now, right? <laughs> but at the beginning, I'm like, I have no idea who this guy is, mm -hmm. right? And then I hear the story. And before I know which side did which or this, that, and the other, I'm like, no, that guy sucks. Or no, he was right, right? Or whatever the whatever the issue is. But it's really cool because to your point, like you bring this fresh set of eyes in, but with sort of some of your principles from outside of Bitcoin. And then the two interact, right? And I bring some of what I learned from Bitcoin based on those principles and based on my personality and my worldview and how I've kind of interpreted that. And then I bring that back out to the rest of my life and to kind of the other more normal parts, I'll call it. And it just kind of keeps going and it kind of, you know, it's almost like jumping in and out of the pool and each time it's a little different, right? Mm -hmm. Each one informs the other and then that reinforms the, the other aspect or other facet of it. And it's just really cool. And I feel like this is, this is a, I mean, it's almost a proxy for like, for like personal growth, right? Totally. To a certain extent, because it just pushes you. And it's so weird to say that about like some electrons that are encrypted, like, right? Like that's just a weird thing to say. Right. But it does because it's much more than that, as we all know. And it, it, it represents so many other things like, you know, I, I find like Bitcoin mining fascinating. I'm 100 percent farthest from the expert that you can imagine. But once someone the basic concept of like. How energy companies could, you know, 
or how Bitcoin miners could mine with flare gas or how energy companies could get involved in that with stranded gas, how they can, you know, balance the power grid, all this stuff. Just at a high level, totally non-technical, totally fresh eyes. Like that to me was revolutionary. Blows your fucking mind. <laughs> right? I'm like, oh my God, how yeah. do more people like get this, right? And that's just one little aspect. And so you get into all this stuff and then you get into like, I mean, you know, more than anyone, the, the whole the trucker thing in Canada and freezing of assets and Ukrainians here and people around the world. And you hear the stories from like Africa and from the women in Afghanistan who had their money shut off and all of these kind of things that are so much more broad, broad than just kind of your circle of what's going on. And that blows your mind. You're like, oh my God, like, what does this woman in Afghanistan who's fleeing from the Taliban and tr or trying to pay the people that worked for her, you know, basically off of a thumb drive or some words in her head, what in the world does that have to do with Chevron? Well, it turns out actually they're connected by Bitcoin and they're both like totally unique, but connected in fascinating aspects of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And that to me is why it's so cool is because it touches everything in totally different ways. And then you kind of learn lessons within there and then you bring them back out, you know, to the, to the real world. And I, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. It also makes you contemplate the big things. And if you're inclined to do that, you know, again, that's almost self-reinforcing. Like if you're inclined to that anyway, it just makes you more inclined and it may be, I would argue, makes you better at it. Right. And it opens up new doors and new ways of thinking about things that you've kind of always thought about. And I do agree. Like, I think we almost have a crisis of like, consciousness. Um, everyone's medicated, a lot of uninterested people, a lot of people want to be told what to do. Um, it drives me nuts. <laughs> um, like I was saying, you know, I don't care who like, like I like sports. I like watching sports. I played sports my whole life. I don't care who the backup, you know, left guard is on the Baltimore Ravens. Like I just don't care when I know what's going on in the world. Right. And it doesn't mean that there's not time for like certain aspects of bread and circuses. It just means like, if that's all you're thinking about, or that's kind of the extent to which you're doing stuff, you're missing out. And I think, you know, maybe it's always been that way. And it's just more amplified now that we're all connected and you can see it. But I do think there's some kind of loss there in terms of just like people reflecting on things, people taking a minute to just think through something, um, people being interested in things outside of the screen that's immediately in front of them. Right. I struggle with this with my kids all the time. Like, I don't want them to be addicted to screens right mm. but it's a hard battle and again like we're in the middle of it and so it's like how do you how do you get out of that I, you know i don't know if i could answer that i would probably be in charge of something <laughs> yeah well i mean I, I guess the answer is slowly methodically consistently you yeah. know but over the course of time right not all at once i mean if you have that out of the cave moment right where as you mentioned the the gloss comes off of your eyes and you're like, oh, shit, fuck, awesome. Like all these different emotions, like you can't make all those changes in one go, right? So you prioritize, you engage, you keep going. And it, it's a it's a never-ending process to, I guess, ultimately build and live the most meaningful life possible based on what you think is is most valuable. And I mean, that's that's not easy. And especially it's not easy when we're coming out of the type of culture and world that we currently have, but now there's such a, a powerful catalyst and ally in that pursuit in Bitcoin and in the, the culture that it's fostering that, you know, as much as you want to be blackpilled today, when you scroll through Twitter or you listen to the most recent presidential address or any of this nonsense, you got to remember, like, 
there is so much good, unprecedented stuff happening. And the only yeah. logical thing to do is to leverage it to maximum effect in your life and to whatever causes are most meaningful to you. And I, you know, like, I don't see what other option there is, but to, you know, to your, there's two things you mentioned that I, I wanted to touch on. Um, one was, and we, we were discussing this a few minutes ago, but when there's that type of emptiness for lack of a better term, I mean, it gets filled up with so many things and, you know, maybe it gets filled up with the things that are easiest to grasp onto or that are most impulsive or most speak to, uh, you know, hedonistic elements within us or, or, or whatever. And I think it's hard to deny that at least that's what's partially responsible for that is a lack of a greater source of meaning. Right. And, and I, I like looking at ancient societies and this is entirely speculation, but there are some, you know, like ancient Egypt, ancient Manoa, Indus Valley, that kind of stuff that they seem to develop a level of cultural sophistication, you know, both artistically and architecturally and uh, religiously in their belief systems and stuff, and then stay there for like hundreds, if not thousands of years. And I wonder if not like, well, as we were saying earlier, the reason why we have the manifestation of the culture in the world we see today is a direct result of the things that we value and the, the things that we want. And so if we're saying that there's kind of, there's this underlying meaninglessness, or, or at least that's not as developed as it could be, it's going to mean that our demands and the things that manifest as a result of our demands are kind of reflective of that. And so if there's no great sustaining meaning that we can access on our own, I think it stands, it's fairly reasonable or logical to think we're going to look out into the world for it. And we're going to want ever more stuff in the world to try to satisfy that thing. Whereas if we get to a place where that meaning is more inborn and it's more sustaining as a result of that, and it's more fulfilling, then I can see a a diminution in the the necessity for more stuff and more material and more material wonderment out in the world because we're deriving more of it inside. And so that was kind of what I mean by when I say I'm really interested to see like what the world looks like when when this culture that we're participating in, let's say, is more and more represented and therefore its values are more and more manifest in the world as a result of uh, of the demands associated with those values um, being signaled into the market, let's say. And so it's it's like, it's really cool because as we've been saying, I mean, I think we're going to bring back a lot of traditional stuff and then sprinkle in a little modern magic. And it could be, <laughs> it could be a really interesting scenario. And the other point you mentioned was, you know, the, um, the I think the kind of relation of Bitcoin to like self-help, right? And, I, and the jokes often been made before that like the orange pill is the only supplement you need to take, or it's the best self-help <laughs> book around or something like that. And I think, you know, if, when you peel it all back, I mean, I think that's the power of the truth, right? What, what's more, what's more supportive of a healthy mindset and a healthy life than truth in its many forms. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's all, that's what you need more than anything. Yeah, and actually, so to sort of circle it back to the to the veteran aspect of this, like you have an extremely mission-oriented group of people, right? And when you and, and a lot of them get out and are looking for a mission. And and like kind of the genesis of all this stuff I was writing and thinking about is like what possible mission, like there are a lot of missions and there are a lot of worthy missions and a lot of unworthy missions. But like what possible like mission mindset could you orient them towards 
better than Bitcoin, right? Like it, it actually at a high level achieves some of this ideological or kind of idealism, I'll say, that they were hoping to achieve in the military and maybe did. Mm. Um, and then at this tactical level, there's so many different aspects of it that are, you know, overlap with the military. And then there's so many different aspects and rabbit holes that you can go down, like we talked about. Um, basically an infinite number of ways to be involved and stay involved. And like, to me, it's such an obvious thing to say, look, you're maybe a little bit lost. Maybe you're a little bit drifting. Maybe you're looking for some purpose, right? And this applies well beyond the veteran community, but just to kind of focus on them. Because I know, I, you know, to a certain extent, I still feel this way. I've been out a long time and definitely felt this way a lot when I got out. And so you're looking at like, well, what can I do? Where can I put all this energy where it actually matters, right? And so a lot of kind of what we're talking about is you, if, if you can reorient them towards that mission, you can almost, you have a small group of people, relatively speaking worldwide, but you have a lot of leverage in terms of, people who kind of get it, right? Who just get the worldview and understand like the hard realities of things, understand why, you know, exit strategies and, um, you know, proof of work concept and like why having hard money is important. And, you know, all of the ways that things could go wrong and, you know, are pretty hard headed and realistic in that sense. So I do think it really fills like a mission void for a lot of people, both in the military who have gotten out and also just people who are kind of inclined that way anyway, to kind of have like a task focus or a mission focused view. It really lets them fulfill that aspect of things much more so because I've always laughed at the corporate world, you know, during recruiting and things like that, they're always talking about like, why, you know, your military experience is so relevant to this, right? Like investment banking recruiting was always a big one. Like it's, they're both hard and you work a lot. And it's like, dude, <laughs> I don't think sitting there doing pitch decks at 2am aside from having perseverance, like there's almost no other relation, right? Like right, right. hardcore military stuff. And so it always kind of amused me. Right. And there's, it was almost like people trying to squid a, fit a square peg in a round hole in terms of like how your experience in this one arena was, you know, applicable to the corporate world. And it's like, nah, dude, you're going to, sit in front of a computer and type things just like everyone else. Mm. And so if you accept that as the current reality for a lot of these guys, myself included, like where you, you got to do something to have a job and make money and, you know, earn a living and, and feed your family. Well, where do you get, if you're not doing something that like is your ultimate calling or, you know, this mission that you think goes beyond yourself and it's more of just like, Hey, I'm doing a job. I'm trying to do it well. Um, where do you get that? How do you fill yeah. that sort of like mission-oriented void, that void of like wanting to serve something bigger than yourself? And that's where I think a lot of this side learning, like there's a lot of overlap between those two communities where if you can just kind of ignite that spark in that particular group and people beyond that group, um, you know, I think they're they're very inclined to dig in and really like grab a hold of that mission and see it as their new mission and just kind of get involved and stay involved. Yeah, I mean, it certainly makes logical sense. Has that been your experience thus far? Because I know you've, I think you've written one piece about this, basically, uh, like speaking to the veteran community, or at least exploring that, uh, what you just yeah. articulated. So has there been like, have you done much outreach? Are you in touch with a bunch of veterans? Because I, I think for those reasons, and probably many others, there's 
and just the chaos of the, you know, as you said, any, this applies to anybody, not just veterans, but perhaps, you know, the chaos of the world is a little bit more, uh, you know, salient to them, or, or they have more kind of up close and personal experience with it, that it, you know, a solution, a proposed, a supposed solution like this would appeal to them. Has that been your experience? Like, is there any it sort has. of resources for veterans and that kind of stuff? So part of me wishes I had a better answer for you. And the reason I don't is I'm pretty early stages and kind of thinking through all this, right? So my, my initial thought was, I think it was like last fall, it was before the Bitcoin conference, because I did go to that for the first time, which was awesome. But I was at this, you know, kind of two-day shooting course thing, taught by a former very tier one operator kind of guy. And it involved like sort of little classroom type things about preparedness. And he's talking about, you know, like kind of prepper type stuff. And he was making jokes or whatever. And he's like, you know, I have little vodka bottles to hand out, stuff to barter, like shampoo and obviously food and all these other things. And he's like, you know, cash. And immediately in my head, I'm like, dude, wait till well, I tell words. you about Bitcoin, <laughs> right? Like, and like the mindset is there, right? It's And it's like, if I could just introduce you to this Bitcoin thing, like you don't need to understand all of the technical aspects. Like your smart guys just get the basics. So I think that's kind of what planted the seed. And then something as simple as just going to the Bitcoin conference for a few days. And I saw a couple of people posting um, like actually Marines specifically posting like great seeing other Marines at this conference. And I'm like, man, like something's got to be done here. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to basically get my thoughts on paper and kind of have something to, to orient people around in terms of this. I think, well, I have a couple ideas, right? Just random ones feel indulge me. Sure. I do think like at, at that conference or either other conferences, maybe, you know, there are half hour panels could be a very interesting panel discussion, right? Bitcoin and mm -hmm. veteran, just get mm -hmm. some either kind of well-known kind of higher profile veterans or some veterans within the Bitcoin community or whatever that may be and kind of have a discussion there. That could be interesting. Um, my kind of other, um, it's sort of a two-pronged approach, right? I want to introduce this concept into the Bitcoin community, but I also want to introduce the Bitcoin concept into the veteran community. So what I, what I wrote was more oriented towards the Bitcoin community, but I think, you know, it would be really cool, maybe through kind of second, third order connections to try and get in touch with maybe some of the more well-known guys that have a little bit of a following out there um, and just talk to them about this, even privately, just introduce this concept and be like, if this makes, and may, I don't even know, maybe some of them already, it's clicked for them, right? Mm. But if this makes sense to you guys, like let's, let's talk about it or use your platform to kind of disseminate this. Um, so I don't really have anything like, formally organized yet, like in terms of a, a actual outreach group or anything like that. I'm kind of, frankly, just thinking through what best direction to take this in. Yeah. And so anyone listening to this, I'm welcome to ideas. My sense is that there's probably a decent number of, well, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that are, are that hold Bitcoin, even smaller group that are maximalists and even smaller group that you know, represent themselves or fuck around on Twitter. But even <laughs> amongst that small group, I think there's probably quite a few. I mean, I, I can think of yeah. some. Um, and, you know, at these, these days, there's so many podcasts out there. I just default assume that there's a, you know, Bitcoin and veterans podcast out there somewhere. I mean, you mentioned going to the Bitcoin conference. There was a bunch of uh, like peripheral, smaller conferences during that week. You know, and I think 
the one that comes to mind is the, I can't remember what it was called. It might've been like God and, and, and Bitcoin or, or something like that, where a bunch of uh, Christian Bitcoiners got together and had such discussions. Um, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense from the point of view of coming together, sharing ideas to try to put forward, you know, the most uh, impactful language or framing possible to that community, you know, because who would who would be who would know better how better to speak to them than you and and other people that have had similar experiences. But it'll also be cool just, you know, for you guys to get together. Cause I'm sure like other ideas would pop out of it. You know, like our our background, our expertise, our skill sets and and Bitcoin. And then, you know, like what aspect of the culture might we contribute to, whether it's information or whether it's products services who knows but as you said before like every like there's there's possibility and potential and space for everyone and every back, background in bitcoin right if it genuinely is emerging or yeah if, it, if it's going to become like a, a dominant culture well then you know like yeah it, that that the, the the surface area of that is pretty much endless right it, it, it appeals to people from all sorts of backgrounds so yeah i mean you 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 should get together and try to try to find the others and, and uh, at least, you know, kick off some conversations and see what everyone's thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I plan to, that's kind of phase two. Um, there is a, there's a group called Vita veterans and digital assets. That's, that's pretty interesting, but they're definitely not Bitcoin. I mean, it's kind of everything. So mm. I'm, you know, more focused on Bitcoin, not really anything else, but um, it's such I'm a different of, philosophy. I feel yeah, like, you know, it, it's almost, you know, not, nothing wrong with the group. Like you do what you want to do. I'll do sure, my thing. Sure. I would prefer it to be kind of Bitcoin only just because that's my focus. I couldn't, even if I wanted to talk to you about all the other stuff, I, you know, I'm not interested. Really, so I yeah. really talk about but, the, it, but the this this impact we've been discussing, this reorganizing effect, it's just, it's just different. You know, like when you meet other people that are effectively maximalist, like you, there's an immediate connection. Like, oh, I see where you're coming from. Like there's an alignment on values and principles and you kind of can almost immediately know what their perspective is. And I mean, it's just, it's magic. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I, I love going to the conference because you, you're able to meet so many people and within seconds, like your homies. It's, it. Right. And, and, and with other ones, that gloss that you mentioned on the eyes, and it just, <laughs> again, I'm being a bit of a dick here, but it's, it's like still there. It's not removed. And uh, it makes it makes the connection different, you know. So I, I do think there's a well, there's obviously a difference between being kind of like thinking it's a, a multi-coin world and focusing on, you know, Bitcoin and the the elements and attributes inherent in it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's you know, like like I kind of mentioned the social kind of socio-cultural aspect of it too. I mean, again, veterans and Bitcoiners are two huge, varied communities, but generally speaking, like you get in right, you get in touch with some of the right kind of veteran groups. And like, again, you don't, there's a lot of stuff you don't necessarily have to explain to them. Like you'll have to explain a lot of the Bitcoin part maybe, but sort of like why Bitcoin, mm. all of the things leading up to what would make that a choice. Like they see it, they get it, right? Even stuff like just the health stuff we talked about. Like these are generally guys who are eating clean, you know, into physical fitness and taking care of themselves, a lot of personal responsibility, right? I think I mentioned in my thing, you know, Jocko, you probably have heard of him, mm. big personality, awesome dude. Not that I know him or have met him, but really all he's the stuff he puts out is great. And this whole idea of like, you know, extreme ownership, 
like if you were coming up with a tagline for self-custody Bitcoin, it would basically be that, right? Like yeah. the whole thing about like, I was also kind of thinking about his line about discipline equals freedom. And, and I, I think I what he, that one. yeah, like he could probably explain it better than I can. And maybe even you could, but you know, this idea, like you, you have the luxury of doing in the military context, I'll put it like you have the luxury of doing, doing all these high speed, cool things because you've got the basics down because you're disciplined, right? Because you're physically fit enough to do it because you've done the basics and you don't even think about it. And you build on that concrete foundation of discipline mm. and that itself, you're not a slave to like, well, I don't know if I can do this because I'm not in shape or I don't know if I can do this because whatever, right? It's you build on this concrete foundation of discipline and that allows you so much more freedom. And I was like, you know, it's really, I think, a decent parallel to Bitcoin in the sense that because you're building on this immutable code, right, this concrete foundation, that is the discipline that allows you freedom to then do layer two solutions, layer three solutions, you know, things we haven't even thought about yet. But, you know, integrating Bitcoin into like health services or food or whatever your thing is, that freedom comes from the discipline of the code and of how it was constructed. Right. So I think there's a really cool parallel there where it's like, if you can kind of frame it in those terms, I think a lot of people on both sides would, would understand the parallel. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with that. I think that's excellent framing. And uh, I've always loved that. Uh, I think I, you know, like, I don't, I don't know if Jocko coined it or probably, he probably just, you know, really popularized it, but I always thought of it in terms of if you in a disciplined manner go, th you know, basically approach your life um, accounting for and making sure that the essential stuff is taken care of in all domains, right? And you you engage that process in a disciplined manner, like it's non-negotiable. Then all of those, knowing that all of those things are as, as well in place as they can be, then as you say, it frees your mind up when you want to explore the fringes, when you want to try to push the bounds of your understanding or push the bounds of your capacity, then you know you have that foundation of you've uh, you've put yourself in the best position possible to give yourself the freedom so that you're not you're not worried, you're not thinking about, you're not consumed with the concerns of all those other things. So you allow that freedom to discover something new, to to explore something new, and uh, yeah. I think I think that's right, right? It's a matter of determining which limitations are most validly to, you know, subordinate yourself to in a certain sense and make sure you're doing so properly such that you can, you know, uh, explore novel domains uh, absent being, you know, confused or distracted or drawn out by those concerns that you could have gained a certain amount of control over through discipline and as and and so doing that allows you that exploratory capacity and and not doing it kind of inhibits it um i know this is a kind of a large question to end on but i uh, i can't help myself when i'm speaking with military people the monopoly yeah. on violence is um something i think about a lot you know because we've gotten to a place in the world technologically where you know we have nuclear arsenals all over the world and and as we go into the Bitcoin era, I think it's pretty reasonable to assume that there's going to be a kind of splintering of jurisdictions because people are going to be so much more mobile with their lives and with their wealth that 
you'll be able to make those decisions and you won't be so restrained by um, the things that were keeping people in place as it were before. And so I think this puts pressure on, you know, large bureaucratic nation states and people and, and jurisdictions going to be, have to become more efficient and more competitive. And, you know, basically the sovereign individual thesis playing out, but we have this issue that one, presumably the monopoly on violence will shrink dramatically, but there will still be a mechanism to mediate disputes, whether even if it's only in the, the realm of let, let's say land, if it's not in the realm of other, you know, wealthy things, but presumably it'll still exist in some capacity. And of course, nuclear weapons will still exist. Now I heard a, a, a someone say recently that all those nukes would be just be decommissioned for uh, like small nuclear reactors to mine Bitcoin. And this is how we're going to, you know, basically decimate the nucle nuclear arsenal and, and remove that okay. risk from our, uh, from our concerns, which is a very hopeful one, if not an entirely uh, realistic one. But what do you think about, about those two issues? I mean, that would be cool. I wouldn't <laughs> put too high a probability on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, based solely on like, and you kind of get into this thing, right? Like, I know there's a lot of issues with the nation state and whatever, but like, it, it, it is what it is. And it's probably, at least in the current form, going to stay. And the, the, the difficulty, I think, sometimes with the nation state stuff is this is maybe if I'm being completely frank, this might be the one part of Bitcoin that I still have a little bit of, not skepticism of, but like I think is a little, maybe a little bit naive in terms of people talking about, you know, dismantle the nation state and this, that, and the other. And it's like, maybe, but like, what's your timeline, right? Because, you know, it would be cool to see that happen to a certain extent. It might also introduce a whole bunch of things, even with Bitcoin that we can't even foresee, right? So I, I don't know exactly. The other problem is when you're dealing with nation states, it's states plural. So like if, you know, you go even to something like nuclear disarmament and that whole thing and when, during the Cold War, like we can do whatever we want, but like how do you make sure that Russia does it, right? Or even like all these like <laughs> green protocols and stuff and, you know, us self-flagellating our societies for having plastic straws and it's like, Cool, but what about India and China? Mm. Right? Like, cool. You guys, you guys now use paper straws, like doesn't do anything. Right. And so I guess that's a sort of a glib way of trying to illustrate this idea that like it's a multi, you know, multi-nation state world. And so it gets very, very challenging. I do think, like from a monopoly of violence standpoint, again, it a little bit ties back into the discussion we're having about back to basics. Like, you look at the constitution, right? Like well-regulated militia. You look at how we won the Revolutionary War. It was basically, and I'm not like saying, you know, militia and like the weird connotation that we have now. I'm just talking about like, you know, stuff like the National Guard even, right? Like there's a certain amount of autonomy that like governors have over that versus, you know, the federal, the Pentagon and, and the, at the federal level. And so even then you get down to stuff like self-defense and, you know, there's a certain aspect of violence there. And you don't want vigilante Wild West justice, but at the same time, like, let's say you live in a community that's fairly rural, tough to get police there. You're all somewhat like-minded in terms of self-defense and, you know, you're close with your neighbors or whatever. Like, I would argue that that's almost sort of like a decentralization of violence or the capacity mm. for violence if needed, mm. right? And 
you then also get into this idea of like, I would say at that level, the decision of whether or not to use violence and how much is probably a much more accurate one than at any sort of centralized, uh, you know, distant kind of decision-making authority, mm. right? And so just that principle of like, the more localized, the closer you are to the thing that you're discussing, and probably the better perspective you have on it. So I don't, I don't know if that really answers your question. It's a tough one, but I do think like to summarize, you know, nation states, plural, act not necessarily in concert with one another and will almost certainly always go with what's in their interest. So it makes it, makes it challenging. I do think Bitcoin can, can help, you know, alleviate some of that. I'm not sure it can completely eliminate it, at least not in any short time frame. And then just, you know, that monopoly of violence, like I do think it's important to, you know, have that basically as disseminated and decentralized as possible within the confines of the law and everything that we have to deal with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with much of that. And of course I'm definitely guilty of uh, looking at the future through perhaps overly rose colored glasses or orange colored glasses <laughs> as a result of, of Bitcoin, but you have to account for how dramatically things can change, you know? And, and I agree with your point on the kind of decentralizing uh, force in society, which is why I think, you know, gun rights and stuff like that are so important. And then when when people are responsible and capable of defending themselves and their communities and their families, and they're aligned on values, then should threats emerge, they, they probably will join forces to meet those threats, which is, again, as you referenced in the, the constitution and the idea of militias. Um, but I, I think the, the point about nation states and, you know, kind of how much longer or at least in what form will they continue to exist? I just don't, you know, I think funding themselves is going to be the big issue um, because they're so bloated now. And now that there's to say nothing of like, you know, the, the debt that they've racked up and of course they'll inflate it away and what kind of chaos that will create. But the punchline being the jurisdictions, well, first of all, everyone has the capacity to custody their own wealth now. And so over the course of time, I think circular economies will develop. And so when you're being paid in Bitcoin and when you're transacting in Bitcoin and nobody can, you know, no one's the wiser about those transactions, nobody's taken their pound of flesh, well, that funding becomes even harder to maintain. And then you have competing jurisdictions, albeit small ones at the beginning, which are experiencing so, such, so much more prosperity as a result of more free and open competition and markets and less regulations and less oppressive taxation regimes and all that kind of stuff, that I think the the in, the decreasing amount of ability to fund themselves compounded with the competitive pressures by jurisdictions that have taken a a different route or have adopted to the new monetary landscape that is Bitcoin sooner will put quite a bit of pressure on these jurisdictions one way or the other. And, you know, there'll, there'll be a lot of laggards that fail to see what's going on and they'll be the ones most likely, unfortunately, that continue to be, uh, you know, more, more of their flesh gets, uh, gets extracted from them. But I don't know. I like, yeah, you're probably right. Right. But who it's knows? A good you know, history, history is weird. It, it, things can yeah. happen fast. Well, it's like that old, I forget which prime minister or whatever, but it's like the, one of the British prime ministers was asking 
you know, his predecessor, like, what's the, what was the hardest part about the job? And he said, events, my dear boy, events. It's like, <laughs> you never know what's going to yeah. happen. But to point, I mean, it's a very good point. Like, you might even see something like, I mean, we didn't even touch on the debt. I mean, that's a different conversation, but it's obviously massive, just horrendous debt situation across the world, public and private, right? Levered three or four times, basically, to global GDP. But you look at, like, the EU, the debt like if you're a betting man, there's a pretty decent chance in the next five to 10 years, the EU splinters, whether they like it or not. Mm. And the sole or the, the probably the primary driver of that, aside from like this energy crisis, which is just exposing things, would be the debt, right? And issues around the debt. And so maybe it's a staged kind of thing where, where it happens in stages in terms of the trend has been towards centralization, right? The EU is like a perfect example of that. And the realities of physics and math dictate that most likely, or at least a decent chance, you're going to have a more decentralized EU going forward as a result of that debt. And maybe that kind of theme plays out across the globe. I don't know, but I, I think it's certainly possible. Yeah. And I mean, whether it's through not being able to, uh, you know, see transactions and, and take a cut, or whether it's because people move to these more free jurisdictions, the punchline is your tax base is diminishing. Sure. Uh, there's there's going to be a, I don't know, we, perhaps we've even met that horizon already in, in real terms. But in any case, it seems to be a pretty safe bet that the tax base is going to shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink over time. And what do bloated governments do about that? And well, the only, I think the only answer is, is they, they adapt, they shrink their operations until a, a finer more equitable, more, uh, you know, balance is achieved between the two constituencies um, or they collapse. And, you know, the former would, I guess, be better, especially if they do it on a timely basis. But knowing how stubborn and ingrained, you know, so many things are and these systems are, the latter is, if you, as you say, if you're a betting man, you probably bet on that one. Right. It actually, when you say that, it kind of reminds me of an article I read about Detroit years ago. And like, I think if I recall correctly, like, they had shrunk the size of the city physically because they couldn't pay for it, right? And there was in such shambles and collapse, like they actually shrunk. They just the re redrew the, the lines, you mean? Yeah, we're like, we can't turn on the streetlights out here or whatever else, and they just shrank it, right? <laughs> you are no yeah. longer part of the city. Yeah. Sorry. Like you're on your own. And I mean, the other is a total aside, but I remember the other crazy part about that story was people were lighting fires when something bad happened, like a, you know, a murder, a robbery, or assault, whatever, because at least someone would show up because the cops were so stretched thin. It was in such a bad state. Yeah. You know, and, and so that's that, the yeah. point, right? You, 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 you tend to think things progress linearly, right? But as yeah. you say, events happen or exponentials, you know, take effect. And what you thought was going to take a hundred years, the, the breaking point that you thought was going to be met or how it was going to be met is different. And it ends up only being 10 years. And then there's a massive uprising and then there's this chaos and then there's a reconsolidation and people have to fig figure things out. So, you know, I'm, I think we all would want to see as little chaos as possible. But as we said, when we started this discussion, I mean, we, we seem to be in a time of great change and who knows how that's going to play out and how quickly it's going to play out. But again, thank fucking god that we have something in bitcoin where we have a peaceful opt-out you're or at least you know because most people aren't opting out entirely um a way to insulate yourself from the chaos and a way to contribute to something productive that could be a 
a, not only a viable, but a much better replacement for what's been, you know, what we've experienced up till now. And that again, like what more could you want? That is the best possible option available because the pitchforks and the coups and the, all this kind of stuff, even if it works for a time, it ultimately fails because you're victim to the same type of system and you're victim to the same incentives and you're victim to the same human, you know, fallibilities in these positions of power and stuff like that. And so, you know, we just, we got to do our best to be good Bitcoin citizens, I guess is the punchline. I think in a, I think in the piece I called it something like a monetary medevac, right? In, in this <laughs> yeah, I like that. That was good. You have this wounded kind of society sitting there and like, I don't know, maybe it doesn't take everyone. Maybe it can fit a lot of people. Maybe it's not taking you to the best place yet. And it's a two-stage journey, but like it's getting you out of the shitstorm, right? Yeah. Like it's getting you off the battlefield and you're hurt. So I don't know. We'll see. It's um it certainly gives me hope. And as I mentioned before, I'm not exactly always the most optimistic person. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think I can appreciate that. And uh hope is a powerful thing to have, you know. So that's that that in itself is enough to be thankful for. Um, Wes, any, you know, final comments or anything you wanted to get off your chest before we shut it down? Um, no, just, uh, one really enjoyed this. Thank you very much for, for inviting me on to talk about it. I really appreciate it. Um, to, you know, I guess if anybody has good ideas about how to further integrate kind of these two communities, whether it's veterans listening to this or Bitcoiners or people who happen to be both, um, I would love to hear from you. Like basically just kind of trying to figure out how do we have the most impact? What can I do going forward? And I'm really sort of in the, the idea germination stages. So welcome any input. Um, and uh, yeah, Bitcoin is hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I agree. I really enjoyed this. I appreciate your time. And if there's anything I can do uh, to facilitate that endeavor, uh, just let me know and I'll, I'll do whatever I can to help. Awesome. I really appreciate that. All right, brother. Take care of yourself. All right. Thanks, John. Take Cheers. it easy. See ya.